Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 5 and can be found on page 11 of your bulletin. Join me first, please, in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another, humbly, in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Brandon Stanton is the name of one of the most popular and best-selling photographers in the world. He's most well-known for his street portraits and interviews collected on the streets of New York City called Humans of New York, or Honey. His first book by that title spent 31 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and his social media posts are some of the most shared in history. I, I love how he gives windows into people's lives and stories. There's one portrait and short interview of his that is always stuck in my mind. The portrait is of a young woman standing on a subway platform. She's a recent college graduate, and Brandon asks her if she wishes if she'd done anything differently in college. She responds very honestly. She says, I wish I'd partied a little less. People always say, be true to yourself. But that's misleading because there are two selves. There's your short-term self and there's your long-term self. And if you're only true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. There's a lot of wisdom in these words. 
We're starting a new sermon series today, and at the heart of what we're going to be talking about over these coming weeks is, what does it mean to be true to your long-term self, the person whom God made you to be? What do we do when we realize that we've been living for our short-term self, but we desire something more lasting and real? And how do our daily choices and actions form us into one kind of person or another? These are some of the questions that we want to ask as we reflect on what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. These are the virtues that he says will mark the character of a Christian, someone who has God's Spirit living inside of them. So today, we're looking at this passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to look at each one of these virtues more closely. But today, we want to focus on the big picture. And there are three questions that we can uh, explore in our text today. Three, Three questions. First, what is the essence of the fruit of the Spirit? Second, why do we struggle to bear the fruit of the Spirit? And third, how can we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? So let's look at each one of these. First, what what is the essence of the fruit of the Spirit? Notice that although Paul describes multiple character traits as the fruit of the Spirit, it's all one fruit. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit. This means that there is an essence of the fruit of the Spirit, but it takes, it takes multiple forms. And what is this essence? Paul tells us in verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly, in love. The spirit-shaped life is a life of loving freedom. When we think about freedom, one of the challenges of our modern age is that we usually think about freedom as freedom from rather than freedom for. Let me explain the difference. Freedom from is what philosophers call negative liberty. We are free as long as no one is constraining our choices. This kind of freedom is attractive, but it has its problems. If this is the only way that you think about freedom, it's not very practical because our freedoms often conflict. For example, if you're a student, you're free to stay up late every night and to skip classes, but eventually your freedom to not go to class will conflict with your freedom to graduate from college. Or another example, your freedom to eat whatever you want may conflict with your freedom to enjoy a long, healthy life with your children and and grandchildren. Negative freedom doesn't tell you what to do when you have a choice between different things that make your life meaningful or enjoyable. 
And this is why we need to think not just in terms of freedom from, but freedom for. Not just negative liberty, but positive liberty. This is the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. Freedom for a life of love. The goal of Christian freedom is love. This is why you'll notice that nearly all the character traits that Paul describes here, both negative and positive, are about relationships with other people. In describing the acts of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, yes, attention goes to sexual behavior and substance abuse, but the majority are related to the ways in which we mistreat other people. Hatred, discord, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. In the same way, the fruit of the Spirit is almost entirely relational. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you are in a relationship with other people, especially a committed relationship, there will always be constraints on your freedom. Walking by the Spirit means that we discover the right kinds of constraints that lead to the truest kind of freedom. In a commencement address at the University of Pennsylvania, David Brooks described how choosing the right constraints and commitments is necessary to a fulfilling life. He said this, to have a fulfilling life, you have to make promises. You have to surrender some freedom of choice to taste a higher freedom. The freedom that comes after you've settled on a direction, chained yourself to a cause, and enlarged your capacities. It is precisely our restraints that liberate us for that higher freedom. You have to chain yourself to years of piano practice to have the freedom to really play. To lead a fulfilling life, most of us make four big commitments. To a spouse and family, to a vocation, to a faith or philosophy, and to a community. The measure of our lives depends on how well we choose these four enduring commitments and how well we execute on our promises to them. So this is our first point. A spirit-shaped life, a life that will bear the fruit of the spirit, is a life of loving freedom, and there's no conflict between walking in the spirit and our freedom. Real freedom comes as we seek to do that. So if these things are true, then why do we struggle so much? One possible answer is that we're just not trying hard, not trying hard enough. And, and there's certainly something to this. Galatians 5 is full of imperatives. Walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. And which of us could say that we're doing everything in our power to fulfill those commands? This does show us that the fruit of the Spirit is not automatic. It's not a matter of us just sitting back and waiting for the Spirit to change us. The metaphor of fruit here captures this dynamic of change very well. Yes, the source of new life is the Holy Spirit. God brings the fruit. 
but we are still responsible to tend the soil of our hearts. I learned a hard lesson about how this works in our backyard garden this summer. Every year, Linda and I plant a garden in our backyard. We love to get outside in the spring and dig up the soil and plant starters. It's just everything that comes after that that is kind of a struggle. (laughs) The weeding and the watering and the tending. But the only vegetable I really care about is tomatoes. Uh, I love garden fresh tomatoes. So this year, I planted 14 tomato plants in our garden. So in the spring, we got everything planted, and then we got completely distracted. You know, things got busy, and we just kind of stopped trying. But occasionally, in June and July, I would look out the kitchen window at the overgrown garden in the back of the yard, and I would think, well, at least I planted all those tomatoes. Even if it's overgrown, surely we're still going to get lots of tomatoes. But what I discovered is that actually, weeding and watering are more important than I realized. I was surprised how few tomatoes we got. If I planted half as many plants, but actually took care of them, we would have gotten twice as many tomatoes. There's always next year. But what my experience shows is that bearing fruit, even supernatural fruit, is not automatic. If you want to grow spiritually, but you don't prioritize what we call the means of grace, worship and prayer, scripture reading, fellowship, then you may get a few tomatoes, but you're not going to get the abundant life that Jesus promises. So certainly we struggle oftentimes because we're not willing to put in the effort that change requires. But Paul shows us that there is something deeper going on than just our willingness. Notice the contrast that he makes in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Paul says that underneath all our willing and our working is our desires. And there are competing desires within us, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the spirit. Of the, spirit. the word that he uses here, desire, is an important one in the New Testament. Uh, in Greek, it's epithumia. That's two words in Greek. Epi, which means over, and thumia, which means desire. And so literally, it means something like over-desire. A desire of the flesh sounds in English like something sensual, but, but this over-desire takes different forms. 
It's not just about physical desires or desires for bad things. You can over-desire something bad, but you can also over-desire something good so that it becomes destructive. So, a desire for food is a good thing. But if you over-desire it, it becomes harmful. The same thing applies to all our other desires, whether they be for recognition or security or success or sex. Let me offer this illustration. A book that I sometimes read with students is entitled Learning for the Love of God, A Student's Guide to Academic Faithfulness by Donald Opitz and, and Derek Mellaby. And actually, there are a few copies uh, on the welcome table this morning. If, if you're a student here, I invite you to take one as a gift this morning. Uh, and in this book, these authors describe two kinds of over-desire that they find among students, though it applies to any stage of life. First, they describe students who come to college for what they call beer and circus. This includes drinking and partying, but it's also something broader. It's about desiring freedom, negative liberty, freedom from, above all else. They say that the, the beer and circus creed goes like this. I am on my own, free of parental supervision and bogus limitations. I'm here to make my own decisions about what I want to do and who I want to be. I don't think I have to convince you that, that Beer and Circus is alive and well here in Madison. But there's another form that over-desiring can take. This is the mindset that Opitz and Mellaby call grades and accolades. These are the students who come to college ready to work hard, achieve great things, and get a good job. They believe that hard work gets rewarded. Now, Someone who pursues grades and accolades may look better than someone who parties too hard. But it can also be destructive, especially in the long term. Very often, highly driven people are struggling on the inside in ways that people cannot see. They can be anxious, consumed by what others think of them. They often sacrifice their health for the sake of more and more achievement. And so both ways of over-desiring, whether the object of desire is freedom or success, can be destructive to us in different ways. What this shows is that we all look to something for meaning in life. Our desire is aimed towards some ultimate object. And that thing, maybe we could call it what we worship, will either liberate us or potentially destroy us. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, puts it like this. We are all worshiping and serving something. If there is no God, you will have to turn some created thing into a God to worship. And whatever that thing is, it will punish you with inner fears, resentment, guilt, and shame if you fail to achieve it. What if, however, there is a true God, and if, as the New Testament declares, 
He came to earth to die for our sins on the cross. Then there is one Lord who, when we fail him, will not punish us, but forgive us. If you serve your career, your career will never die for your sins. If you live for your career and you fail, it will crucify you inside with self-loathing. But Jesus was crucified for you. We've been saying that we struggle, with, we struggle to, to bear the fruit of the Spirit because the desires of the flesh still compete for our affections. But when you see the depths of God's suffering, self-sacrificial love in Christ, then it changes everything. Jesus was willing to give up his freedom to be nailed to a cross to liberate you from sin and death. He was willing to save you at infinite cost to himself. When you experience a love like this, it melts your heart. It creates a new desire in you, not to serve yourself, but to serve him and other people. Perfect freedom becomes reflecting in your own life something of his love. You want to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit to look more like Jesus. So how can we do it? Paul provides a vivid image in verse 24 to guide us. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Anglican pastor, uh, John Stott, uh, in his commentary on Galatians, identifies three things that this powerful image teaches us about crucifying the flesh. Uh, first, Stott says that this means that our rejection of the flesh must be pitiless. Crucifixion was not a pleasant form of execution. It was reserved for the worst and most shameful criminals. So Stott says, the flesh is not something respectable to be treated with courtesy and deference, but something so evil that it deserves no better fate than to be crucified. So we must kill it. Second, our rejection of the flesh will be painful. Crucifixion was a painful way to die. So we should expect that dying to sin will hurt. There's no way forward without the pain that will come as we kill the flesh. Finally, our rejection of our old sinful nature is to be decisive. Stott says, although death by crucifixion was a lingering death, it was a certain death. Criminals who were nailed to a cross did not survive. So, we will not be changed completely in this life. Our flesh dies gradually, but we will see it finished. The Romans put soldiers uh, below the cross to prevent anyone from being taken down. And this must be something like our attitude, to guard our flesh, to repent every day, to take up our cross daily. And uh, if you'd like a model for how to pray like this, I encourage you to 
to look at that prayer that uh, Christy drew our attention to earlier uh, on the Reflections page from John Stott, his daily prayer. Uh, the, the Christian life is a commitment to a daily practice of repentance and faith that looks like this. Taking off what is old and putting on the new life in Christ. The good news is that as you walk by the Spirit, you will find that your long-term self is more real and solid than your short-term self. Let me end today like this. You may be familiar with the classic children's book called The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams, first published 100 years ago in 1922. The main character is a simple stuffed rabbit filled with sawdust and with ears lined with pink satin. And when the velveteen rabbit comes to his child's playroom, he feels quite inadequate next to the fancier mechanical toys who, the story says, were full of modern ideas and pretended they were real. The velveteen rabbit is confused by the idea of what it means to be real. So the rabbit asks the oldest and wisest of the toys, the skin horse, what is real? The skin horse replies, real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, the rabbit asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. By the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Friends, what we've been talking about today, what we're going to be talking about in these coming weeks, is what it means to be real. As you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, my promise to you is not that you will have a comfortable or an easy life. You may get loose in the joints and very shabby. But know this is true. You will have a life that is real in the deepest possible sense because you are bearing fruit that will last. This is the promise of the gospel. Because Jesus died for our sins, we can die to our sins. Because Jesus took up his cross once and for all for us, we can take up our cross daily and follow him. Because Jesus is alive and risen from the dead, we can live an abundant life. He is real, and we discover what it means to be real in him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we are more broken than we realize if the things that are wrong with us do not need minor surgery or better instruction, but need to die. We are so hesitant to submit to you in this and to tear down our idols. We are afraid that you are not really good and you will not keep your promises to us. We cling to pride as if we can do it all on our own. Help us to see that you love us more than we could ever imagine and that you ask nothing of us that you have not been willing to endure yourself in the person and work of Jesus. Help us to know your love in him and empower us to change by his spirit so that we might become more like him in all our relationships, in our friendships, in our families, and here in your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.